Before we get started, I need to thank a new Patreon patron. Thank you, Kristen Sorge. I hope I'm pronouncing your last name correctly for becoming a patron at the $3 level. Since Kristen is a patron at the $3 level, she not only gets access to our monthly bonus podcast, the original cast of the movies, this month featuring Logan Caldwell Block and Caroline Dubberly talking about the 1973 movie musical Lost Horizon. And oh my gosh, if you haven't seen it, you should. It's free on YouTube. Go check it out. But she also gets a personal message, which can broadcast on this podcast at any point. That's one of the perks of being a $3 patron instead of a uh, $2 patron. So thank you very much, Kristen. And I also wanted to say real fast here at the beginning that I've been getting uh, a lot of great emails from people uh, in the last week, actually, um, talking about uh, listening to the show and how much they're enjoying the show and uh, all the wonderful uh, ways they're listening. And it's it really makes me feel so good. I'm so glad so many of you are out there listening and enjoying the show every day as it comes out every day. But uh, more than one email has referenced uh, mentioning when the uh, baseball shirt, the original cast baseball shirt, goes back on sale. And uh, that shirt specifically is a big hit, it seems. And uh, all that stuff is for sale all the time at bit.ly slash originalcaststore. You can go buy t-shirts and baseball shirts and tote bags and magnets and pins and all kinds of fun original cast merch. Um, all very reasonably priced, I think, actually, uh, through tpublic.com. So again, that's bit.ly slash originalcaststore. And also go to patreon.com slash originalcastpod to become a patron just like Kristen. All right, here's the show. Whenever my world falls apart, I never lose hope or lose heart. Whatever the form of the storm that may brew, not with you to lean on, darlings, you. Hello and welcome to The Original Cast, a podcast about original cast albums and the people who love them. I'm Patrick Flynn. My guest today is a singer, actor, vocal coach, all kinds of stuff, lots of hyphenates. It's Casey Aaron Clark, everybody. Hello, Patrick. I'm so excited to be here. Oh, good. We're so excited to have you. So I, we, we've set this up so long ago. <laughs> I forgot how we were connected and I went and looked back through my email and realized it's like nine different ways. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, as, as I think happens in the very uh, incestuous theater industry, you know, yes. we, it's, it's not six degrees of separation here. It's no. like two at the most. Yeah, yeah. 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 It's a bunch. But so we got Chris Klemek, you got uh, Courtney Self, you've got mm -hmm. uh, uh, Kurt Peterson, which is my favorite. Oh, Kurt Peterson, who oh, I, man. oh gosh, he's such a Just dear. Just the sweetest man. I, yes. One of the sweetest men I've ever met. Yes, absolutely. But we're here to talk about... Little Women, the musical. I will not disappear Oh my goodness. So I got the, I had the great pleasure of playing Joe in Little Women for Stages St. Louis, which is a marvelous regional theater in St. Louis, Missouri, obviously. It was my first time working for them. And I remember 
getting that audition. I went to the, I think I went to the EPA for it and got a call back. I was really excited. And I'm pretty sure that during the EPA, I went in the room and I had like scribbled in the margins on my resume, has local housing because (laughs) St. Louis is um, about... 20 miles from my hometown. My hometown is a very tiny little town in the river bend of Illinois. I loved the book ever since I was a little kid. Mm-hmm. I went into this audition like guns a blazing, which of course is very appropriate for Joe. <laughs> so, <laughs> so yeah, I, uh, and it was so funny. I, I just remembered today because I was thinking about this. I was very sick for my callback. I, I was getting over like a nasty cold the night before my voice was iffy at best. Mm. And I was like, you know, we're going to go, we're, we're, we just, we got to do this because yeah. I want to play this role real, real bad. And I got to read actually with um, the guy who I ended up playing Laurie opposite. And uh, it was just so much fun. And there's such a lovely place to work. And it was, it was their first ever holiday show. So we did the show over kind of Thanksgiving and Christmas at this beautiful old theater in St. Louis that, of course, the name is escaping me now, but like the Lunts played there. Like it was a beautiful old vaudeville house. And it was such a special experience from top to bottom. I mean, the role is great. The show is lovely. The cast, I mean, the first day that I met the women who were going to play my sisters on stage, we kind of all looked at each other. And we were like, <laughs> oh, uh-huh. yeah, this is this gonna is going to be awesome. Like, mm-hmm. and we, uh, you know, hung out together every moment outside of rehearsal. It was super nerdy. Um, but we really, I, I mean, there's still, I still keep in touch to the, with them to this day. And that's, oh, that is great. not something that always happens. I sure. mean, we're yeah. really good at, I think, creating, um, fast relationships in theater like Mm -hmm. opening up to each other in a (laughs) perhaps frightening way sometimes sometimes but but the lingering what the the lingering relationships the ones that stay are are very rare and very precious so Mm -hmm. these women are super super cool and it it will it 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 remains to this day honestly just this kind of perfect jewel in my mind of an experience from top to bottom oh that's great that's a really good connection yeah i I did not know this show very well before you you recommended it. I knew a couple tracks, and obviously it's in the Sutton Foster. Oeuvre. Uh, oeuvre. Yes, that's exactly <laughs> the word I was going to use. Um, so it, it it comes up in the um, uh, in in her track, obviously, and she is Joe Marsh, like you know, yeah, <laughs> with, with a capital J and a capital yep. M. Yeah. Um, though I did sort of wonder. I remember wondering at the time, and I still kind of wonder now. Um, if she's too old to play Joe, it's sort I, of a hard, it's a hard question. I was, oh God. Okay. So this was too. The show spans so. a lot of years. So it I mean, does. You, you need an actress who can well, show and, range. And an actress yeah. likes nothing better, of course, than to play a multi-year spanning role. Right. Oh, sure. Teenager dumb to womanhood. Um, I, I met Sutton back in actually not that long before I did the show. I, I was doing an off-Broadway musical called um, Frankenstein the Musical. Yes, very short-lived. Uh, we we called ourselves Old Frankenstein because we were running at the same time as Young Frankenstein. And okay, we were these we serious <laughs> gothic. <laughs> Call my home genre uh, contemporary scores and corsets. 
Um, oh, you know, okay. Yeah. So, so like, like Jekyll and Hyde. Oh, and, yeah. And, yeah, yeah. And Les Mis and Little right. Women and Ragtime, mm-hmm. you know, give me the, give me the, you know, contemporary legit to contemporary pop scores set in olden times and I will run with them, including in corsets. Um, sure. But, uh, you know, 2008, I think was the time when we were moving away, strongly away from the Gothic musical tradition that was so popular in the 90s. I would have worked all the freaking time in the 90s. Um, <laughs> but, but, you know, ever since Avenue Q showed up on the scene, I think uh, snark and the the wink wink nudge nudge style of musical was was you know ascending mm-hmm. and the serious musical was going you know into the gutter so anyway <laughs> i say all this to say um i did old frankenstein the musical off broadway with hunter foster i was gonna say so, with hunter foster this is you're bearing yes. the lead a little bit yeah i'm bearing the lead so yeah. i uh, you will you will find me very long-winded i i love oh I love that's words. fine no that's um fine. so you know hunter of, of course, Sutton showed up at some point, and I think that I was just a blithering idiot meeting her because <laughs> I was so excited to meet her and sure. was such a fan. But the woman truly does not age, kind of in that Paul Rudd-esque way. I don't know. It, it's really amazing. So this would have been not that long after she had done Joe. And seriously, mm-hmm. she could have passed for 22 23 years old easily and she was definitely in her 30s at that time in her even like maybe late 30s um so yeah i mean i i think i was 25 26 when i did it i was 26 when i did it so i was i was i was a kid still sure 26 qualifies as a kid oh yeah well it certainly does to me now i don't know if it's (laughs) right it does to me now too i mean i'm 37 now so yes it's you know oh yeah. yeah (laughs) <laughs> oh yeah that's a kid yeah i'll say that absolutely that's a kid i didn't think that at the time but oh no of course not. we never think that kid. we're kids when we are never. kids that's like part no, of the no, definition no. so could you think you could because this is something i discovered i don't think i could have done uh can you summarize the plot of the musical little women i i can well and and what's fun so again i've been a fan of little women since way back i i grew up a you know, and am still a voracious reader. Like I was the kid who read on the playground instead of playing. So mm-hmm. I was like a super nerd. Um, so all the girl classics of that, uh, uh, you know, so Little Women, Secret Garden, Little Princess, lots of littles in the title. Mm-hmm. There um, are. Yeah. It's kind of like how every woman's novel now is like the blank's wife or the yes. blank's daughter. So Little Women is this incredible enduring classic that has had, of course, many, many, many adaptations. One of the things I think that made the musical fairly unique is that they played with the timeline um, in the same way, actually, that the very recent 2019 film plays with the timeline. They actually start in a very similar place. So so mm. the musical and this 2019 film both start with Joe in New York. So Joe's in New York. She's pursuing her dreams of becoming a writer and getting rejected roundly and all- what year is it when we begin oh what an excellent question that i don't know the answer to okay it's i'll go to sometime we'll find out yeah it's sometime you know like just 1866 post- it's oh us. okay look at you efficient yeah. 1866 i've got tabs i got tabs <laughs> this is good this is efficient yeah, i'm ready with tabs so so yeah i mean it's post-civil okay. war just after the civil war okay just post-civil war yeah and um she is in this boarding house. She's working as a governess for the woman who runs the boarding house's children. She is sparring with Professor Bear, who 
you know, it's fairly clear early on that they, you know, that they're going to do the whole, we hate each other. And then we're super attracted to each other thing. Sure. Um, and then we sort of, we do through the song better. We do a bit a time jump back to her childhood. So back to her in the attic, hanging out with her sisters, dad's off fighting the war and they're about to put on a play because that's what they did to like have fun. So Joe wrote the plays, they did the plays. And this is when we meet Laurie for the first time, the boy next door. We meet Marmy for the first time. We meet the sisters for the first time. We meet the grumpy old man next door, Laurie's uh, grandfather. Mm-hmm. And sort of then you go into the more traditional timeline of the story. So, you know, we have there often the events are kind of around holidays, which sort of helps for the timeline and stuff. So we get, you know, Amy burning Joe's manuscript, which of course is very dramatic. We get the ball. We get Meg starting to fall for the tutor, which is very like Joe is not into that. Joe is like men suck. Don't do men. We're staying together. And we're not changing. This is sort of Joe's besetting fault, I think. And, you know, in addition to her very unladylike ambition, mm-hmm. she's just like, I love my family and I want things to stay the same. And so she is very, very resistant to anyone else kind of leaving her. Where orbit. is dad? Dad is wounded at that point, And I think he's actually okay. supposed to be like in Washington, D.C. So okay. he, so she has to take a train from Boston. There's no money. So Joe sells her hair, which is very dramatic mm-hmm. um, and caused me to wear what I liked to affectionately call the Molly Ringwald wig. So I was, oh. I, I'm a redhead. I was wigged red for the show. Um, but I had this wig that looks straight up like Molly Ringwald in 16 Candles. Sure. When I did the hair chop, it was very fun. Loved the reveal. Take off the newsboy cap. Boom. Molly Ringwald. <laughs> so, so then uh, Meg falls in love with the tutor. Joe's pissed. She ends up basically being like, yeah, we're going to get married. Sorry, Joe. Love you, but I'm mm-hmm. going to go do like the lady thing that you're supposed to do. Laurie comes back and proposes to Joe. Joe is furious at him. Like, how could you mess up this perfect relationship that we have by making by treating me like a girl like how dare you right and that is when she decides to go to new york so that's the end of act one that's astonishing that's our big you know act Mm -hmm. act one closing number and then act two begins with her in new york kind of right where we left off exactly Mm -hmm. exactly so then act two is really uh her dealing with the death of her sister beth which is obviously very awful um, Amy, who's gotten to go to Europe, sort of in Joe's place, comes back, um, married to Lori, which is a whole thing. Yeah. And so Joe, Joe has this kind of identity crisis. Everything in her life is changing. She feels like a failure as a writer. She doesn't know what she wants to do. And then there's a, a beautiful song towards the end called The Fire Within Me, where she as so many adaptations of Little Women do, ends up essentially coming up with the plot of Little Women. So it becomes mm-hmm. very meta, right? Mm-hmm. Show within a show or book within a show. And then Professor Bear comes back to uh, to visit, essentially, and he's gotten her manuscript and like gotten it published. And then we have Small Umbrella in the Rain and we get Joe's entrance into semi-traditional womanhood, I guess, which is one of the things I think that the movie explored 
the recent movie explored really beautifully. Yes, it's a little cheesy. It's a little corny. I, I think that it's one of those shows that when you have great actors who can imbue the text with something more than what is just on the surface, it works like gangbusters because people just love these characters in this story so much. Well, there's so much to love. I mean, they're just, they're very round group of women. Like yeah. they have a very, very lot, lots to dig into. And obviously the novel is, is a classic at which this point I will confess to not having read. That's all right. We'll forgive you. You're going <laughs> to read it to girls. Like, you girls. At some point, happen. my wife has read it several times, but I realized my, <laughs> this is a weird, I don't know if this is a confession or not. My only experience with the story from the actual, like, Aside from what you gather, you know, just in being in the world and yep. seeing scenes from the Winona Ryder movie and then listening to the show, is I had a 45 record audio book, audio play, really, of it. Just, But it was just a 45, two sides, so it was like 15 minutes tops. Uh-huh. And you could listen to the book, and I don't, it did not cover the whole book. It could not uh, have. No. And I don't know how much of it it covered. Like, I, I don't know if it picked up somewhere in the middle. There's a scene where somebody goes to a party, I remember, and gets uh -huh. dolled up really badly. Oh, yeah. Um, okay. That, that was, made the 15-minute version. I kind of wonder if it was like, if it was one of those things where somebody bought me like record four of six. You know what I mean? Like it was a set oh, and I just funny. got the yeah, one. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, or if I inherited it from somebody. I mean, you never know where you get these things from. Yeah. When you're a kid, you just have them. And so that was my only experience with it. And I, <laughs> it, it sticks in my memory, specifically that scene, because I had this little Fisher-Price record player. And it, it was, you know, had 33 RPM and, and 45. And I didn't know that this was a 45 record. So I put it on at 33 and listened to it a lot. And everybody talked in this very weird. And all the women <laughs> had very deep voices. And I remember thinking, this is a weird, like, production. But okay, whatever. You know, I was however old I was. And then That's later, hilarious. my dad heard me listening to it. I was like, what are you doing? He's like, he flipped it up. And I was like, oh, that sounds much better. But so then I listened to it a lot again <laughs> because it was like, oh, this is all new. This sounds the right way. So oh, that's so funny. Yeah. So Little Women was my introduction into 45 revolutions <laughs> per minute. Um, you know, like every American boy. But uh, <laughs> so that's my big Little Women experience. Oh my God. Chris Klemek is going to love that story. Well, so that's, so this, this came into your music theater development though, kind of late in the game it would seem like it, it was it was later in your what was your experience with theater how did you get into theater in the first place so i grew up singing with my family fun trap style nice. uh, in church my my dad was the music director at uh at our southern baptist church in southern illinois All right. and so i grew up singing gospel with my with my mom and my dad and for a while my little brother although he bowed out very quickly uh, which is a shame because he actually has a great voice, but he he is uh, a prolific musician now in other ways other than singing. But so grip singing in church, did all the church musicals, was the kid who knew everybody's lines in the church musical, oh, including nice. usually like the one adult character in the musical who I often had to prompt with their lines. I was that insufferable child. Wow. Um, but I, yeah, I sang my first solo in church when I was four. So it just was kind of, singing was always part of my life. But musical theater uh, in particular, other than, again, church musicals, where I usually played an, an ornament come to life or a <laughs> toy come to life to tell the true meaning of Christmas to sure. the one adult in the play. Yes. Uh, 
got into more sophisticated musical theater in in high school. <laughs> I say sophisticated musical theater very very lightly. Um, we we did not have much of a theater program at the very small high school that I went to. Um, you know, we did a play every fall and a musical every spring, but we did like the cheap shows from Samuel French. So like we did oh, okay. a show called Give My Regards to Broadway, which was a clear bastardization of 42nd, 42nd Street, Street. Yeah. with George M. Cohen music. We did oh, a show. God. Oh God, it was real, real bad. It was real, I, yes, it was really bad. Uh, we did a show called uh, Midsummer Nights, which was like a 1960s beach blanket bingo version of Midsummer Night's Dream. Uh, and then finally, okay. my, finally, my junior year, we did like a show that people knew. So we did Annie Get Your Gun and I played Annie. Uh, and I think that was the year actually that I went to the Illinois State Thespian Festival Ooh. and took a class called Musical Theater, The Alternate Universe. Oh my gosh. A college professor uh, who, who kind of, he was talking about acting the song and he was talking about how, you know, in real life, when, you know, in musical theater world, when things happen that in real life would just be, you know, so emotional or so traumatic or so exciting, um, you know, in musical theater world, that's when the song comes, right? And that's how you start to analyze the songs, when the big moments come, the big emotions and the big feels and the, the, the transformational stuff. And I remember thinking in, in that workshop, you know, as a 16-year-old, like, oh, yeah, I, I always knew mm. I wanted to sing for the rest of my life, but that was when I was like, oh, well, yeah, I'm going to get a BFA in musical theater and, the, you know, a buffa and, and the right. rest, and the rest is history. Like it's, it, it just, singing had always been a part of my life, but that was when I really, I think, you know, fate was sealed, I guess. Mm -hmm. And so I went to Illinois Wesleyan University and got a phenomenal liberal arts education, you know, in addition to my uh, BFA in musical theater, came to the city, uh, you know, did, did a lot of regional theater work, got a couple of off-Broadway shows and ended up on the Les Mis tour. It's been, it's been a fun ride. I've been, I've been able to do cool stuff and, and work with amazing people and, um, now create this weird hybrid career. So one of the things I think that I really responded to about Joe is the the journey of someone who knows what they're meant to do mm -hmm. in their life and knows that they have a, a a gift that needs well eventually she accepts that it needs refining um right. <laughs> after she i related leaves. to that song <laughs> can i just say <laughs> better better than what better than this dazzling plot better this story will be my That's every young artist. That's every old, like, for, uh, so yes, fair. For fair. writers, that's the whole journey. The journey <laughs> is learning, at least in my experience, learning to not say it out loud is just yeah. being to like, you turn in the draft and they go, yes or no, but do this to it. And you go in, internally, no, 
Like, I can't. This no. is the best thing that's I've, this is the best way I've ever done it. This is the best <laughs> it's ever going to be. And you just need to like say, fine, touch it. And you learn the more you work to be like, that thought is wrong. Like, I understand why I'm having this thought and I'm just going to take your notes. I'm going to put them away and I'm going to walk away for a little while. And when I'm less emotional, yep. I will take the notes because it is just is a terribly vulnerable thing to do. Oh my God, totally. And I can imagine that when you are a, however old she is, woman in the 19th century, especially the chutzpah it takes to simply to say out loud to people that this is what I want to do, let alone do it is like requires a certain amount of irrational, like confidence (laughs) in yourself that can come out in a lot of days. And it does in Joe in the show, obviously it comes out in all kinds of constructive and destructive ways. And the show being, I like that. I like also that it's resolved at the top of act two, that journey, that part of the journey gets to gets her where she needs to go at the top of act two. And then she spends the rest of act two developing other parts of her personality, but that Mm -hmm. kind of like that initial unlocking of what she wants to do kicks right in, in at the beginning of, of act two, which is really, really great. What an excellent analysis. Oh, thank you very much. You know, I, I love working on new musicals and I love working with musical theater writers. And I know that you write for the theater as Mm -hmm. well. Like it is interesting to be part of the process of the development of a new show. And I am, <laughs> I, I have never been short of opinions. Uh, <laughs> ever. Again, another thing that I share with Joe, I, mm-hmm. I have gotten better and more judicious throughout my life about how I express them and also simultaneously have given uh, way fewer uh, in the parlance of the good place forks about mm-hmm. uh, how people respond to, to my opinions, but it's, it it is a touchy thing. I mean, putting your soul on paper and and revealing yourself, and then having other people interpret it, and then have opinions about that. I I can imagine that's well. It's tough for. I mean, it it's also though. It, it's vulnerable in the same way that performance is vulnerable. It just happens first. It's just the like. Yeah. It's the first step. It it's mm-hmm. the it's somebody says write this and you write it and then you give it to that person and they say yes or no. Or they say whatever they say, mm-hmm. and that's before you get anyone else involved. And then if you're, if you are a good writer, in my opinion, as I hope I am, you throughout the development process are looking for feedback to make it good. And one of you know, make yeah. it the best, better as the song says, the best that it can be. One of the things that I've, the story I've told before, but it is that I learned a lot working as an assistant director for Stafford Arima and he oh he's um, brilliant oh stafford's great yeah. and he is he's he's the kind of director i love i love this in filmmakers too where he is a real uh master of the room he really really knows mm. how to create a great environment for everyone to be their most creative selves and one of the ways he's he does that is by not being not caring where the idea comes from he encourages love people it. to throw out ideas and will give them credit for the idea that they threw out because at the end of the day, the show says directed by Stafford Arima and he wants the show to be as good as it possibly can be. And he's mm-hmm. not, it doesn't all have to be his idea. It can be whoever's idea as long as it's the best idea. And that's the way I try to write. And that's the way I think every, like the way people should try to perform. That's the way people should try to do all the things because it's, this is how we get better. But it is a terribly vulnerable thing to yes. do. And it's really hard to be that vulnerable in mm-hmm. front of in front of people. And then it's also like respecting for me, 
and you can probably speak to this as well, someone who does a lot of coaching, I know, that it is very often writers and directors and people who get to stay backstage when the show's actually going on um, can be hard on the people on the stage <laughs> because they're we're all struggling and you're struggling. Like th- what, what we see from backstage, not me, but like people who stand next to me sometimes um, is the applause that you get that we don't yeah. directly get. Yeah. And so we think your job's easy. We have the hard job and you're sitting there mm. going like, your job's hard. My job also hard, you know, like it is, <laughs> it, it's all hard. It's hard in different directions. And yeah. that's the sort of good directors, good people can find the balance in that. Um, and I imagine that's something when you do coaching, you have to talk people through sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Well, there there are a couple of things that that you just said that that I would love to pick up. The first of all, the idea of being the master of the room. And I know you didn't mean it this way, but this is something that I've been thinking about a lot, both in sort of my, I don't know, journey through adulthood and <laughs> in my in my work uh it for my my other job vital voice training where i do speech coaching for business people we've been thinking a lot particularly lately about leadership and like what leadership looks like and and the language that we have around leadership and the way that we think about who is a leader so the phrase the master of the room could imply exactly the opposite of how you described him which is mm-hmm. being a sharer of the room yeah a, an empowerer of the other people in the room and and it's funny we we've thought about this in the context of so much of the advice around public speaking and the the like like that weird thing that pe- that certain people say um you know oh you're nervous like just imagine everybody else in the room naked yeah it doesn't which is literally the worst advice you could it's get but it's also advice. It, in addition to being terrible advice, it's also deeply gross advice because it is predicated <laughs> on the idea that in order to feel powerful, you mm-hmm. need to make everyone else in the room vulnerable. feel vulnerable. Yeah, and and vulnerable or more vulnerable than you, and that's that's just so gross. But so many of the phrases around you know, mastering public speaking or fearless public speaking. There's no such thing as fearless public speaking. There's no such thing as fearless anything. Fear is like, fear is the cost of admission to an interesting life, first of all. But like fear is the natural state of humanity. And I think, so for people who want to be leaders, for people who want to be good at anything, getting comfortable with discomfort, getting comfortable with vulnerability, like leaning into vulnerability. And, and that was like a very long segue into my journey as an actor. And the thing that I, that I hope I bring to all of my students is letting go of perfectionism and letting go, um, letting go of needing it to be right, needing it to be pretty, needing it to be important impressive because i think but you still have to chase it right because that's the that's the trick is that you still like i i I think we're all seeking something impossible and if you don't see the beauty in that you're going to drive yourself crazy where it's like i i totally want every single thing i work on to be perfect and we're striving Mm. for it to be perfect but i also recognize it will not be like it's just it the and actually i should say it might be like i sort of cling to the like it might be (laughs) but it probably won't is kind of my like that's more my philosophy where it's like i have to believe that it's possible Mm -hmm. once ever you know what i mean for something to be perfect and maybe i'll be part of that somehow but like it is we we're we're it's it's that weird. I think that people have a lot of trouble 
holding those two ideas in the head were being like, you just have to relax and understand that it's not going to be exactly the way you imagine it to be. Mm-hmm. But also you have to chase that <laughs> dream a little bit yeah. because that's what keeps, you know, it's the whole, the cliche, a man's reach should exceed his grasp or what's a heaven for. It's that idea of like, you have to be always going for something that you're never going to catch because that's totally. what keeps you rolling. Yeah. What's well, that? It's that, it's that fire of ambition and that fire of, uh, you know, yeah. ambition, meaning whatever it means to you, artistic ambition or, or business ambition or, or life ambition. Like I, I am, uh, and and again, have sort of always been like somebody with really high ideals for myself and really high de- high ideals for what I want to be a part of, and and I think, especially in this very very vulnerable time that we're all in right now, with the world shifting on its axis in so many ways, and like yeah. what is the future of our art form? Like figuring out the balance of high ideals and self compassion and finding. Finding ways to finding ways to balance those two things because I think so often high ideals translates into a lack of compassion for yourself or a lack of compassion for the people around you, and that that is something I think Joe oh, has yeah. to learn. And or, or transmitting your insecurities onto someone else. Oh, I mean, totally. Just, which is not the same as dealing with your insecurities. It's it's not. You know, nope. Just, Nope. Put it on somebody. It is not, you know, it, it, that's not the same as dealing with it. That is simply moving it over here. And it'll still come back and find you later in the quiet, dark night. Oh, <laughs> oh yes. And I think a lot of people are learning that right now. Actually. Uh, yeah. When we have all, well, all this time to think. Well, and that's, what's funny, but I'm sure, I'm sure people, people, this is something a lot of my artist friends are having a conversation about right now. People approaching us being like, with all your free time, surely you can do this project. I'm like, I have no free time. What is free what time? Is free time? <laughs> what is time? I mean, it's what is all, time? We've all what become... are days? If COVID-19 has exposed anything. Right. This, this is all made up. <laughs> money is fiction. Time is fiction. Yeah. Structure is fiction. Leadership is fiction. Oh, but it's just a... because they're fiction doesn't mean they're not real. This oh, is the other, right? like, and the again, collective this is belief. This dichotomy. Is yes. That, uh, yes, it is all made up. We, but, <laughs> but we knew, like, my big thing is we knew that, didn't we? <laughs> I thought oh we my God. That. And I thought we were all like, that's what a society is. We're all just living the same lie. Like, that's how it, <laughs> that's how it works. We're all living the same lie to push away the fact that someday we'll, we're going to die. Like, that's oh. basically what a society is. Oh, so, my God. You know, it's. I guess people didn't some know Some things that, are meant to I'm be, learning. right? <laughs> I'm learning people didn't know that. I thought we all knew that. I thought we all, I, I think I think we all like to forget that. I, You know, what about in, in, you know, diving back into this story, I, I, I was, one of the things that I, that I was reading, and, and one of the things I think the musical does better than a lot of the film adaptations have done really up until this recent one Mm. is, is looking at the character of Marmee and, and looking at her emotional breadth that she's more, because of course, like now I'm 37 years old. I don't have kids. Like when I do this musical again, I will be singing days of plenty (laughs) or I will be directing it because I've, I've already, I've already music directed it and co-directed it on, on teenagers, which was a delight, but, um, Yeah, but, uh, but you know, Marmy actually, within the course of the musical, gets to be more than sort of the, like, smiling, happy, little, like, perfect, angelic mom creature. She gets to be angry. She gets to be depressed. She gets to... And the, the line that was in the most recent movie, and I, I, I should have looked it up, um, 
but it, it's a line that's actually in the novel. And if you didn't know that it was in the novel, you would have been like, oh, Greta Gerwig like added that to be like mm-hmm. all contemporary feminist. But it's Marmee talking about being angry mm. and how she's angry. It's I'm angry every day of my life because Joe, Joe says something to her like, I just don't know how you can be so, you know, so positive and so peaceful all the time. Like, I'm so angry and I don't know what you do with it. And Marmy's like, girl, I'm angry all the time. Basically, mm-hmm. you just don't see it, but that doesn't mean it's not there. And that is a, that in a novel of, you know, from the 19th century was revolutionary. Mm-hmm. And of course the, the novel, you know, you go back and you read it now and, and it's, you know, there's a lot of, you know, sort of moralizing in it. It's, it's, it's very of its time in some oh, sure. ways. And it's also very, very ahead of its time in other ways. And I think that the, the breadth of emotional life that it gives its, its female characters is really, really unique. And, and a story that is centered on women and not just, not just even women like Joe, who are sort of interesting and unconventional because they act more like guys. Mm-hmm. It's also the story of like Meg, the sister who just wants to get married and have kids and like have pretty dresses. And it doesn't look down on her for that. Right. It it treats her like a full person with dignity. And it also treats Joe, the sort of Hellcat weirdo, as a person with dignity. Like it's it's really that I think is what people respond to so deeply about this. They see themselves in these characters in a really modern way. Well, in the musical, uh, you, you could speak to the novel, obviously, but the, the, the musical has this wonderful thing. And it's probably from the book where that the, the villains such as they are, there are no real <laughs> villains in this. Yeah. There, are, there are antagonists throughout um, aunt being a big one. Um, it's not but the people who are quote unquote the bad guys or the conflicts they arrive because not because of what a character believes but because a character tries to impose their beliefs onto somebody else so mm-hmm. meg isn't that decision isn't the problem um and she's not like you say vilified but the, yeah. the roles of like like the people who try to train joe into being a proper woman quote unquote mm-hmm. the the sin they commit is is by not looking to see who she is yeah. before they try to pour her into some kind of mold. And that's also the same fight that Joe has with Laurie is the like, how, like you, you are, it's funny because she's, she's as wrong as she is right, but she is right that he's imposing this viewpoint on her that mm-hmm. like, I, 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 we should get married. Now, of course it's hilarious because like he clearly has deep feelings for her. He's not, mm-hmm. it's not like uh, when Mr. Collins proposes in oh, Pride yes. and Prejudice. Oh, it's good. not the oh, same, like, yeah, right. Like, like, I got yeah. it. it. It's not that it's not, we'd be a good match and you have money and blah, blah, blah. It is more, I love you and her being like, shut up. You know, it's that kind of r- yeah. routine. And so I like that in that, that way of the, the, the villainy as such as it is arises from, conflict of ideas and mm-hmm. people imposing their beliefs onto other people. Cause it's also all the bad things Joe does. I mean, Joe does Completely. that to other people and it causes all kinds of problems. And once everybody becomes Zen to who I'm me, you're you. And it's the whole, I mean, that's basically what the song, um, uh, small umbrella in the rain yes. is about. It is totally. the, I will meet you where you are. You know, and it's if two people do that, then they're perfect for each other. It's that, you yeah. know, that combination. And it's kind of what happens in um, The Most Amazing Thing with Amy and Laurie. 
in a more kind of cutesy way, yeah. they they find each other where they are. You know, they yep. meet in the middle and go, oh, actually, we're perfect together. Isn't this funny? Like, we thought yeah. it was you and her and blah, blah, blah. I said I love fireflies. I said so do I. I told him I hate goodbyes. There was something in her eyes. I swear that bells began to ring. We found that we were so unlike it. It was amazing. And it's still kind of crappy that they... <laughs> oh the complex feeling oh isn't it Gloria it is that oh man right. that was something i had no that was one of the things like reading the plot oh, yeah. like oh he she winds up with him you know, so, it's, yeah it's fun and i think i think that if if that if those scenes are played well i mean the the you know the biggest sisterly con conflict is is amy and joe and they oh, sure. the way that they really butt butt heads and and it, the fact that then they end up like sharing the same boy sort of, of course, is like a perfect, Oh, absolutely. You know, a, a perfect wrench in the, in, uh, in that. Absolutely. But, so I, you know, the proposal scene with Joe and Lori, I was really, so the actor that I played opposite Ben Nordstrom, marvelous St. Louis based actor, um, just stupidly charming. We had so much fun together <laughs> and I, I thought that we found with our director, Michael, a really fun balance in that scene where just for a moment when he kisses her, she actually like does respond to it. And that scares her more than anything. Mm -hmm. That it's not just, I hate you, you're stupid. It's, I could see myself saying yes to this and that's not what I want. And right. that makes the conflict so much deeper. So then when Joe, when, when Lori and Amy come back from Europe, it's like, oh, did I make a mistake? Yeah. I, I may have really messed this up. And this is another thing that the Greta Gerwig movie did, I think really, really, really well. Cause that's not, I mean, I, I, and I love the Winona writer version. It will kind of always be like my main version of this, but um, I thought that it portrayed the complexity of that really well. This, the thing of like, I'm happy for my sister. I'm happy for my friend. I'm also kind of like, I mean, that's the thing about adult choices and adult life. You never, the path that you didn't go down and, oh, yeah. and the melancholy of that, I think is really beautiful and complex yeah. in, in a way that, that we, that we rarely see perhaps in a musical, I don't know, uh, or in a, in a novel even, I mean, maybe more yeah. novels. But. Well, it, it, it's a really, again, because it's so nuanced, it's a hard, I mean, it is basically one of the, the plots or themes because the show doesn't really have a plot of follies, of, of Sontag's mm -hmm. follies. There's a whole song about it, you know, The of Road course. You Didn't Take. But that but what, what Ben sings about in The Road You Didn't Take, it, ultimately he then w winds up at the wrong conclusion mm. because he still sort of is, is justifying the decisions he made more than looking at them kind of honestly and being like, as you said, there kind of is no right, wrong there just is what happened. Like they're the choices I made yeah. and they brought me here. Now, am I happy? Well, that's a whole other conversation and we can, talk, you know what I mean? <laughs> then yes. you can talk about that. But like, that's not like wondering about the road you didn't take, I think is inevitable and, and also yeah. kind of useless <laughs> in this terrible, which is very much yeah. to Joe's credit that she doesn't dwell on it. Yeah. She doesn't live in, in that pain and she doesn't sort of take it out on Laurie and, and Amy in the long term. Obviously, no, there's some, I, yeah, short-term consequences the, but you know i i think it's the and, and that's like a, a the sign of her growing emotional maturity too because mm -hmm. certainly like act one joe would have been like hey you both i'm never talking to you again <laughs> like, yeah so, she mean, says to a lot of people <laughs> yeah right um well it's it yeah it 
which is why at the end of the day, as much as I know, you know, like there's a, a there's a strong like Joe Laurie shipping, you know. Oh sure. Agent. I yeah. think that that Professor Bear is the 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 choice for her if she's going to end up with anybody like the guy who pushes her intellectually who who you know they have this kind of spark together they 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 make each other better in that yeah. conflict, in that conflict and they meet in the middle i mean that's that's the choice that then feels like it's going to help her continue to grow into the person that she wants to be which is cool i mean that's yeah. what you want in a long term relationship right absolutely it's so funny it is a very pride and prejudice relationship oh, on a smaller totally. scale but it is a big like i really like i just rewatched um bridget jones diary not too long ago uh-huh. which of course is also pride and prejudice yeah. and um it is the 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 wonderful the scenes of of affection confession that both uh colin uh colin firth and uh or is it colin farrell Colin, oh, Colin, Fer- Colin Firth. No, you were right. Colin Firth, right the first time. Yes, the original the Darcy. The original Darcy, oh. yes. That uh, Colin Firth and uh, Renee Zellweger have for each other are always couched in this language of like, I mean, I hate you. Like, you're super, like, I love you. <laughs> I mean, you're super annoying and you dress badly and I don't like any of the things you do, but I love you. It's, it's a really nice, like, <laughs> very honest <laughs> display yes. of affection, which is basically what... Um, small umbrella in the rain is is the whole idea of like listen you're wrong all the time but like <laughs> you could be wrong with me like that'd be yeah, fun i could think be wrong together <laughs> and it would be delightful yes i won't be sweet won't be demure this i prefer this i don't i'll speak my mind you can be sure i'll be enchanted to the core if i say let me share your small umbrella i'll say who cares if we get wet as different as a husband and a wife No, we'll be different as a woman and a man We'll fight our way through life We'll disagree the best we can And yet You'll make me smile, you'll make me laugh, you'll make me care How can I explain inside my heart I feel the pain when you're not there. Such an honest, genuinely mature way for two people to wind up together. Totally. Is it the sexiest? No. Like Laurie and Amy, way sexier and like cute and <laughs> finishing each other's sentences and you just want to punch I, them. I, you know, but, the sexy, the sexiness I think has to come from the spark between the actors on stage. And I have a story about that. And it ooh. does not, it will say, so my, my, so handsome, so handsome, so lovely, homosexual. So mm-hmm. like that was not that was not going to be a thing. Also, right. I was married at the time, but and I'm still married. Right. But uh, but we had a student matinee one day. So why? Oh so that scene, the way that scene was staged, we had three kisses. There was sort of the initial like little you know romantic right at the end of the song. This little tentative chase, little peck, and then there was like a little bit more of a kiss and then after he tells her about the novel there's like the pick you up and spin you around and kiss mm-hmm. you and then mom walks in which is super embarrassing right Ooh, yeah. so anyway <laughs> during our student matinee you know we realized very quickly and we realized this during the proposal scene when she also gets kissed that every time there was any hint of physical affection of course the kids were going to go Ooh, you know the, mm-hmm. the very verbal reaction right um so Michael, uh, Professor Bear, was like 
thinking that was hilarious. So he got rather enthusiastic about the kisses. Oh no. And then uh, when, you know, so when Marmy comes in, we, you know, we were staged to do this sort of little like shove away from each other. So <laughs> he shoved me that day with such vigor that my ankle, my, my, the, the heel of my, you know, lovely 19th century era boot caught on the hem of my lovely 19th century era skirt. I went down on my butt and I slid like 15 feet across the stage. Wow. And everybody in the audience went silent. <laughs> Professor Bear and Marmy both went and like reached out. And then I just got up and we kept doing the same. But that that was uh that was one one very very wow. uh result of physical affection on stage in the sure. presence of teenagers. Sure. When we all yeah. get a little excited about the audience reaction. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a valuable lesson. You know, yes. don't anticipate. Don't, don't anticipate. <laughs> Live in the moment. Don't anticipate. Oh God. Because damn. <laughs> oh my God. I slid so Far. That's a long distance. I mean, That's really, a- I don't. I, the momentum, the whole thing. The whole thing. It's like a perfect. Like you couldn't do it if you tried. It's no. only with that like perfect like <laughs> heel skirt thrust yep. kind of movement. Yep. It's a Twilight Thart move. I think, <laughs> oh, she would have loved it. Right? She would have loved it. Susan Strumman would have the bracket of the house. Brilliant. <laughs> oh my god, that's hilarious. Well, so, how do you think that the show compares? To the, I mean, some of the critics. So the, the musical was did not run for very long. No, and was only nominated for one Tony for uh, for Sutton Foster, which she did not win. Um, but she'd already won by that point, and it was sort of widely reviewed as being. Uh, I think Ben Brantley said something about it being like speed reading the novel, Ugh. which again, like it's an adaptation. It's not going to be the whole thing, but. Um, it, it, it the, but the consensus sort of seems to be that it sort of gets the 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 hits the high points but doesn't mm-hmm. really capture the depth of the novel but you seem i think you would take it issue with that it seems from what you're what you're saying i you know it's one of those shows that i think and i did not see the the broadway production mm-hmm. i right. i i think it was 2005 right yes 2004 yeah 2004 okay so i was still in college at the time um and i yeah i it's one of those shows that I think you really do have to have actors with phenomenal chemistry. Oh, sure. You have to have, and, and not just, again, not just the men and the women, the sisters have to have incredible chemistry on stage because there's not a lot of time to convey the depth of the sisterly relationship. And so you have to do it non-verbally and you have to do it within the staging and you have to do it within the tiny little moments. So. So I thought, I mean, again, I'm like a hundred percent biased because again, it was one of those perfect oh, experiences, sure. but I think that what my stage sisters and I found and what, you know, through our, our director and, and through the chemistry that we had was like every single little moment that we could grab onto to make a meal out of story-wise mm-hmm. and depth-wise. And, um, whether any of that read to the audience, I hope it did. I don't know, but it read to us, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? So we were able to be in there and be, and have the depth into it. Um, I, I mentioned that I music directed and co-directed this show on teenagers. We did it 
in a dance studio in three quarter round. And so, and we, you know, we set up this basically Joe's attic within this dance studio. And I was playing a grand piano in the corner and, you know, the audience was on three sides. And so the level of intimacy in that space that the, that the cast had with the audience was really exciting. And, and we had a very short fast and furious, you know, rehearsal period. And of course these are kid actors, but they were, they were really, really smart kid actors. Mm -hmm. And again, I, I think for, for people who know and love the story and both our director in St. Louis and, you know, the woman that I co-directed the show with knew the story so well that we were like, these are the moments that we can make a meal out of. So while this main action is happening, you know, Joe, you and Meg need to be like having significant looks back here because you know what's going down here. And, blah, blah, blah. and like, so those are the things that give it, I think, the, the, the depth that perhaps Monsieur Brantley missed um i have uh, uh you know uh, yeah I, I i think that often the stories that critics don't respond to often tend to be women's stories sure um and i mean like they turned up their nose at wicked like is wicked a perfect musical no but you know what people freaking love it yeah just a and little you, bit yeah and you know who loves it teenage girls and their moms and you know who buys tickets to broadway yeah. teenage girls and their moms like there i think that there's a general level of like turning up your nose at that kind of thing so i was in my my very first off broadway show was uh shout the mod musical it was a 60s girl group show a like you know basically like it was like beehive too like... yeah I, you know there were there are so many 60s girl group shows we were the british 60 girl 60s oh, girl okay. group show got you, got you. um but <laughs> so i was a i started out in that show as a swing and then through kind of a horrific vocal injury ended up taking over for oh, one gosh. of the women of the show like literally like the day after we opened um but i watched charles isherwood watch our show <laughs> and by watch our show i mean fit with his head in his hands uh -huh. for most of the show and i was like dude you decided what you thought about this show before you even walked into the theater sure and frankly screw you for that like mm -hmm. i hate you i it's <laughs> this is something that Chris Klimek and I had a conversation about the first time I met him at the Kennedy Center American College Theater Festival, where we were both coaching, um, about the job of the critic and understanding what people were trying to do with something before you actually judge whether it had any merit. Yeah, that's hard. <laughs> in oh, my yeah. experience, in the reviews I've read of, of things that I've written. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, <laughs> yes. It's hard. Um, yeah, I don't, man, that's a whole other, that's a whole other podcast, but, uh, cause yeah, anyway, it, it is, but I also think like one thing I did find listening to this is that I, to me, the score and then also reading about the production with all the doubling, it doesn't really feel like a quote unquote Broadway show yeah. to me and it, now that that's sort of a dismissive diminutive thing that I don't like to say, but it, there are certain shows that when you put them in the Broadway theater, lose some of their, because there's oh, so yeah. many expectations when you put on top of that. And like Wicked is a Broadway show, you know. Like, totally, totally, yeah. All, all the way up and down. But this felt to me like something I would like to see in a dance studio 
with yeah. cer- where you can see everybody or in the round or even if it is on Broadway, I'd like to see it at like circle and square. Like oh, I want to totally. see it in the smallest, most confined kind yeah. of stripped down way possible because it is a lovely score. And mm-hmm. so it, but it just felt very small to me. And it felt like if you put it in a Broadway house, it would lose it, it just would it wouldn't fill the space in the same yeah. kind of way yeah and that so that sort of what what the review snippets i read all sort of to seem to be dancing around that same thing of yeah. that of Which, idea that i can that i can i can accept so growing up in st louis um you know the touring house there is the st louis uh, the the uh, the fox and it's an enormous i mean it's a barn it's 3000 seats mm-hmm. And shows get eaten alive in the Fox. Yeah. Like you can never hear them very well. You can't see them very well. I totally agree with you. And I, I don't, I, I thank you for having the concern about like dismissing it as like not a Broadway <laughs> show. Cause that actually like, that is a real crappy thing that happens to some shows. But sure. I do think that this show, this show is rewarded with, with intimacy. And I think, mm-hmm. I think, and, and that's actually another kind of beautiful tie into the novel that like Louisa May Alcott was giving us the story. And this is a thing that, that Joe struggles with as a writer as well. Like what is a story that is worthy of being told? What mm-hmm. is a story that is interesting enough to be told to people? And, and she wants to write these, you know, these big bombastic adventures because that's Blood what she guts. finds awesome. Yes. Right. And, and you know, she she dismisses the idea of telling her own story and the story of her family as just not being something that anybody's going to be interested in. But I think that those are the stories, you know, those intimate, small, you know, maybe some would say petty or, or you know, un, I don't know, unimportant stories are the ones that that we do hook into on such a human level. Oh yeah, and can be so much more effective, but it has to be in 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 a presentational style. Yeah, um, which is also why when you said you were doing a gothic Frankenstein musical off Broadway, it struck me as like, well, that should be in a like <laughs> those those shows you know, belong in, in the Sydney Opera House. You know, probably like, should have been maybe not I mean, downtown at you know St Mark's Place, but oh well. <laughs> but there we were, they were. We were at Thirty Seven Arts on Tenth Avenue, and you know what? Tourists don't go to Tenth. No, tourists don't go to Tenth Avenue. Not. They do not. There's no, there's no <laughs> restaurants down on Tenth Avenue. There was one. We went all the time. <laughs> Burgers and cupcakes. Oh my god! Wow. Okay. Hey, I could get down with that. <laughs> it was. It was good. The cupcakes were excellent. <laughs> well, what, so I, I do want to dig into the gothic musicals a little bit with you, <laughs> since that's your like that you consider that to be your well, your your contemporary bailiwick. scores and corsets. So so gothic sure. is like a subgenre of that, but yes. Oh, so what else would be in contemporary scores and corsets that isn't aside from Les Mis that isn't gothic? Uh, like I wouldn't call ragtime gothic. I secret garden. You think ragtime has a contemporary score? Well, okay. Well, okay. So contemporary scores meaning like written in the eighties. Oh, you mean written in the, Oh, see, I took that to mean like scores that had nothing to do with the time period in which the show took place. Oh, well, which is Les Mis and everything Frank Wildhorn ever wrote. (laughs) Yes. And, and, uh, and I, I met my husband the summer I did Jekyll and Hyde. um, Oh, wow. And played, so who Emma. were you in Jekyll and Hyde? I, I was Emma. Oh, and who was he? Uh, he was Spider, actually. Oh gosh! But we also did um, we also did City of Angels that summer, and I was Donna oh. Uli, and he was Stein. So oh, okay. So we there did we did uh, City of Angels, Oklahoma, and Jekyll and Hyde, and it was like All right. straight up summer summer stock theater. So mm-hmm. there was one day that summer 
I'm going off subject. I will get back totally to fine. contemporary scores. Um, there was one day that summer where we had a read-through, sing-through of Jekyll and Hyde in the morning, a run-through of Oklahoma that uh, afternoon, and a and our final performance of City of Angels at night. And <laughs> I was 19 years old and in heaven. I was going to say, and it was the best, the best it time was, of your life. It oh is... my God. I loved it so much. I, lo- I yeah, mean, yeah, yeah. what, what, what an embarrassment of fun riches. That's so great. I was going to say, that sounds wonderful to me. Oh I couldn't God, do was... that now, but it sounds wonderful. Oh, <laughs> it sounds it's just, so it was good. magic. Sounds so lovely. Yeah. I mean, so, so uh, yes, contemporary scores and corsets, I would just call basically any score written, you know, sort of the eighties and after sure. set it olden times. So, so that would be like Jane Eyre and, mm. and, you know, so yes. So Jane Eyre would fall into the Gothic category. Secret garden is like Gothic light. I would call it, uh, you know, lame is obviously. So a lot of literary adaptations, obviously. Sure. Yeah. Um, Phantom. But, it, and, and, you know, and vocally, I think they fall in that sweet spot of like, we're not doing Howard Peel. There is some vibrato involved. Sure. Often. Mm-hmm. But we also have a little pop flavor, but we're also not like riffing. We're not mm-hmm. like doing like wicked pop and we're not doing rent pop because that those are, I mean, I'll sing alphabet anytime anybody wants me to, but like that's not my it's not my home genre. Sure. Um, so they need like big voices. They need flexible voices. Often they need kind of superhuman voices because also a lot of these writers don't, uh understand voice oh yeah how voice yeah oh my god like freaking boobly and schoenberg uh (laughs) lovely ladies and then like literally like 15 minutes later you're supposed to sing like the mini mouse range like it's ridiculous it's stupid like no one should ever have to sing (laughs) you need ridiculous ridiculous vocalists to sing these songs these these shows sure Um, but they're yeah they're they're big shows they're meaty shows they're they're emotional shows they've oh, got, they're very emotional shows got yes. huge and they're and they're sincere shows mm-hmm. which, which is something that i really think we lost on broadway for i i would say and and i i have great affection for avenue q and things like i actually think you're mm-hmm. in town is a is a genius piece of writing that that manages to both lovingly, you know, make fun of musicals, but also like have a genuine heart to it. But like, so I, I did, I've done a lot of nymph shows in my time and um, you know, nymph is sort of full of these musicals that, they just don't take anything seriously. And it's, it's all there's, there's like a, there's a thin layer of snark over everything. Yeah. And I, I find snark cowardly myself. I find snark without a point of view cowardly. Yes, I, yeah. I yes, totally. It, Snar- it's... Snark in service of something can be yes. highly effective. Absolutely. Snark for the sake of, gosh, aren't we smart? Yes, is I, awful. Well, I think I mean, <laughs> and this is so for like a hot second in 2013. I thought I was going to be a lifestyle blogger because um, I was bored. This was this because <laughs> it was, was 2013. <laughs> I don't know. This was I, I like DIY projects. I like baking. I've been doing a lot of baking recently, but um, I. I wrote, I started a blog as you do, you know, mm-hmm. cause I also like Joe, I like to write. Um, there you go. And my first blog post was sort of an anti-snark manifesto. And it was, it, part of it was based on 
what I what I was seeing in in the theater world and in the world of social media and in the world of uh, you know of writing in general, like nobody seemed to want to put a stake in the ground and say what they really thought and what they really felt. They wanted to kind of dance around it, and they. It, so during Shout the Mod Musical, I was 23 years old. I turned tw- I, I made my off-Broadway debut on my 24th birthday. Nice. Um, and I, I, I got a nickname during the process of that show. And that nickname was Rebecca of Sunnybrook Farm. And it oh was my. not a compliment. Oh, it was, my. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't it, like they weren't trying to be assholes about it, but they also were like patting me on the head and being like, oh, right. you're adorable. Oh, aren't you adorable? Eventually, yeah. New York's going to make you cynical like me, blah, blah, blah. And, and I, that, I think this is another thing that I, that I share and deeply love about Joe is her essential optimism and her essential positive, like, like the fight for optimism. The, the, um, and the utter sincerity with which she does everything in her life, um, you know, to the point of, again, like messing up her relationships. But it's, I, I think that the reason why I, I appreciate people with the balls to be sincere and to say, this is what I love. This is what I, this is what I believe in. This is what I, uh, this is the stake that I want to put in the ground. This is the soapbox that I want to drag out and and get on top of and 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 yell and even if i disagree with them you know up to a certain point obviously there are certain things that i will never ever respect no matter how passionate you are about your opinion but but and that's something that i that i really missed in in musical theater daring to take the art form seriously and daring to take the stories that you tell seriously um and I don't think we got it back until Hamilton. Mm-hmm. I think Hamilton is the first time that we saw real, genuine sincerity on stage, and 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 kind of unapologetic nerdiness. And it's not. And sincerity doesn't need to be deadly serious. Sincerity doesn't need to be treacly sweet. It can have an edge to it, and it can certainly, God, I hope, have humor in it. But like. Daring to take the art form seriously and going, okay, now what can we do with it? Like, that's exciting to me about musicals. That's what, that's, those are the kind of musicals that I want to do. Uh, as opposed to like, blank, blank, exclamation point, the hilarious parody. Like, I'm, I'm just. <laughs> I mean, your point is very well taken. And, and it is funny that somewhere like in the early 90s or mid 90s, we lost, I'm sort of scrolling through musicals on my computer here, mm. like trying to figure out when it went away. <laughs> and like, what I, was the moment? Because yeah. Rent is an unbearably sincere show. Oh, yes, like, it, it is. Like, <laughs> it is so sincere, it should probably calm down. But like, <laughs> as I flip through, what what's interesting is that i think while i can feel like it went away and then it like it came back it didn't actually went go away it it just became super unfashionable yes and the like with shows like sort of as the show we did last week on the show the producers really kicked this off with when you're in town as well like this uh-huh. whole like snark fest but while that was all going on you still had like Flaherty and Aaron's writing a man of no importance and other Ugh. like things going on and Wicked is very sincere like right yep. in the middle of all this it, it would it seems to me that there was a certain point in the nine in the in the 2000s and I don't know if it's connected to 9-11 or not we're not going to figure that out today of where we began to distrust sincerity yeah as being like wait what are you trying to sell me like mm. what are you don't you see what you're doing and how what you're doing is ridiculous yeah and 
when that happened, because it, it happened in films too. It happened everywhere. Oh, like yeah. everything oh. kind of fell apart. And then we slowly start to build it back up again. And I think that one of the enduring strengths about the musical as a format is that it can take the lumps. Like it can mm-hmm. take a decade almost of like aren't musicals dumb being the running musical and in varying <laughs> levels of success like done very well with like drowsy chaperone yeah or done very poorly as in a lot of things but uh <laughs> that i'm not going to try to go into but then like we come out of the 2000s with next to normal which is another like unbelievably sincere like show <laughs> that one <laughs> i'm alive yeah. i'm alive i am so alive I'm so alive yeah oh Pul- god pulitzer um <laughs> It's a good, what's so funny about Next to Normal to me is that, as a quick aside for Next to Normal, Next to Normal as a whole is amazing. But yes. when you start, when you pull little pieces out, it's very easy to poke fun at Next to Normal if you take <laughs> it apart. If you take the disparate pieces and look at them individually, you're like, wait, that's a show? It's like, this yeah, is an on. excellent point. Yes. It's much, much better if you watch the whole thing. <laughs> like, yes. like, all right, whatever. Um, <laughs> and it seems like every decade, this, the musical goes through a thing where there's a prevailing form and then it gets lost in itself and then it becomes weird and then it comes back out again. And, and yep. as you say, like Hamilton is riding on a wave that comes along with shows like Fun Home and, and mm-hmm. Waitress and Great Comet, which are very, very earnest shows that also recognize their musicals and that mm-hmm. there's a certain trope to that. And I feel like yeah. we're back around again a little bit. Yeah. But with the, what's funny when you say contemporary, uh, court, what is it? Corsets and <laughs> contemporary scores and corsets. Contemporary scores and corsets. Which, if that's not the title of your second album, it, you're, you're, you're really wasting your time. The it is the sense of like there was a there's a tone to a lot of those. Like I mean, Frank Wildhorn's the example I'm going to keep oh, picking yeah. on because he's very pick onable. Yes, he is. Is like <laughs> there's an absurdity to the sincerity to a point where you're just like, I don't think you're actually being sincere. I think you're acting sincere, but like, Oh yes. The performance of sincerity the, is a yes, whole the, the other sort of thing. level like that. And that's what people actually distrust. And it seems like yes, everything else gets swept up into that. Like that's unfortunate because you know, yes, Les Mis is ridiculous, like objectively ridiculous. It's a weird, broad, the notes are absurd. Like you say, and all of Colm Wilkinson's choices are just confounding. <laughs> it's a but, lot. At the same time, I wouldn't change. I wouldn't trade it for the world. And if you took me to see that tomorrow, I have like three specific spots in it where I will sob. And that's just that's just that show. And yeah. so that it is still a good show. I will defend that show to the end to the end of the earth. But it like it's a very narrow line from like Bill Schomburg's Les Mis to you know another show they wrote, Miss Saigon. Which is like a whole other thing it's such a narrow range that like big broad sincerity to be like to pull that off is is harder actually than all the other and that's together. why it's ballsy that's yeah, why it's daring 100%. like that's and that's why when you pull it off like i will follow you to the ends of the earth i mean so so you know frank wildhorn it's so funny like that's another show that is jekyll and hyde is a show these are shows that are not actor proof Right. Oh There's God, no. That are just so good. Oh yeah. And like, and, and I, I just told you I have a lot of soapboxes. So one of the soapboxes that I have is that all aspiring musical theater writers and playwrights should have to workshop their shows on amateur actors. Mm-hmm. 
on students, on community theater actors. Because if it takes a brilliant actor to make your characters three-dimensional and make your text work, yeah. then your text need, needs work. Needs work, yeah. Well, and I, you know, I have, I have a lot of, I want to talk about soapboxes. I have a lot of soapboxes about type because oh, gosh, I yeah. am, you know, I I've, <laughs> I used to call it the Sarah Adelaide conundrum. Uh, standing next <laughs> to some women, I'm Sarah. And standing yeah. next to other women, I'm Adelaide. So, you know, people have not always known what to do with me. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it used to, it, it used to just almost hurt my feelings. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? And especially, I think especially, and, and this is a thing I think for every woman in the business uh, to a certain extent, you know, when someone, when someone called me at different points in my life, a character actress, I was like, that means they think that I'm ugly, right? Mm-hmm. Which sucks because this is, you know, and you know, this is one of those things about being a woman in a business that doesn't always tell the complexity of women's stories well. And that has, you know, three types that you fall into. You're the ingenue, which means you're young and you're skinny and you're falling in love and you're not too complex. They have the leading lady who is older, skinny, beautiful, and falling in love. And then you have the character actress, which is literally everyone else. Mm-hmm. And, and anyone who falls into the two category, to anything, yeah. means you're a character actress. And I, I used to chafe at that. And, and again, through my career, I've been, I was, I was never an ingenue, never, ever. I played Cinderella and Into the Woods. That's as close as I got. That's a Sondheim ingenue, which is not a real Not ingenue. an ingenue. Yeah. Not, not an ingenue. Yeah. She's quirky as hell. But, uh, but what, you know, I've been different things for different people in my career. And I, I have come to, at 37 years old, fin- finally go, actually, that's fun. And that means that I get to do a breadth of things that, that other women are not going to get to do until they're older or not going to get to do in a while. And, and also it means that for the people who do see me, they're more inclined to like really see me, which is Mm -hmm. great as opposed to see me and put me in a box. So that, that feels good, but it, I mean, it's a long journey to get there for sure. Oh, sure. As an actor. And, and I, for my young students, like I, you know, I work with, um, so I work with a lot of Broadway kids and former Broadway kids, like (laughs) Broadway teenagers. And I work with a lot of, uh, college students as a singing coach, you know, my, my public speaking clients are all adults, but, um, I love teenagers and I, so much of the type conversation is about what you can't do, what you're not allowed to do because it's not appropriate for you. Mm -hmm. And what I want to tell all of them is like, no, screw that. Like, that's not, don't, you know, yes, be sensible. It be smart, you know, make choices in terms of how you want to show up and be seen. But this is the time of your life to, to push the boundaries and make the different choices and like try singing something that, that you just respond to because you love it. Not because it hits the high notes that you think you're supposed to hit, but like tells the stories that you want to tell. Like that's, that's the music that's going to get you to stand out in a room is when you find the, the fire within you when you find the, the thing, you know, the, the story that you want to tell, that's, that's the thing that sets you apart and makes you magnetic. Mm-hmm. That's wonderfully said. 
that's absolutely beautiful. And I can't think of a better way. I could talk to you <laughs> endlessly. So I think we'll, but <laughs> this was have, so delightful. This was so wonderful. Casey, thank you so much. I was so this glad we so got to do this. So people can find you at CaseyAaronClark.com. That's me. And they can read all about all the things you do. There's a lot of information <laughs> on this website, I have to say. And <laughs> I, uh, figuring out my brand. I'm still <laughs> the hybrid, the hybrid lifestyle. The oh man! <laughs> I used to call Jeez. it the slashy lifestyle. You know, actor slash yeah, slash 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 all the slashes down, and people can buy your yes. album, which I did, and I can't. Yeah, and it's oh. so good. Yes, you can listen oh to the God. song. I was begins. such a baby when I made it. I was <laughs> like, and I also printed one thousand cds right before everyone wow. stopped buying i was gonna CDs. say it was 2008 it was, you were oh right on the line there. <laughs> literally there are so many of them living in my parents house <laughs> god bless well, what them. are what are parents houses for what are parents houses for who is he who is he with his marry me with his ring and his marry me the nerve the gall this is not not what was meant to be how could he ruin it all with those two words i thought i knew him thought that he knew me when did it change what did i miss a kiss when i thought on and on that we were meant to forge frontiers how could i be so wrong and i need how i need my sisters here if i can't share my dreams what were they for I thought our promise meant that we would never change and never part. I thought together we'd amaze the world. How can I live my dreams or even start when everything has come apart? The original cast is produced and edited by me, Patrick Flynn. The original cast is on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at OriginalCastPod. You can follow me, Patrick Flynn, on all platforms at UnknownPenguin. Enjoying yourself? Leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts and tell the world. You can also find the original cast on Spotify, Stitcher, Overcast, and wherever fine podcasts are available. This track you're listening to right now can be found on Casey Aaron Clark's album, The Song Begins. Go to Apple Music or Spotify to listen now. My thanks to Casey Aaron Clark for talking to me. I'm Patrick Flynn, and I can't. I have rehearsal. I will blaze until I find my time and place. I will be fearless, surrendering modesty and grace. I will not disappear.